Welcome to the EGPHD Team Podcast, episode number 67 with myself and Anna. Hi Anna, how are you? Hello, I am well, thank you. Unfortunately, lost the sexy husk now. So. <laughs> I know, I was just thinking that. I listened to a little bit of a podcast last week just to see what we were sounding like and I thought, geez, we both sound like we're on death of the door. That <laughs> was an optimistic half-hour podcast. <laughs> how are you? I am well, thank you. It's seven in the morning and I'm sat half in bed because I'm at my mum's and oh yeah I don't have an office so I'm sat in bed because it's freezing in Scotland so it's a boffice they're the best oh okay my friend my best mate Jo she said something about a boffice the other day and she said how did we not use this term for the whole of 2020 boffice is such a good word like and you've just used it I feel like that was missing all of last year why were we not using that more See, I don't think I used it because I had to make, not make an effort, but I was like, no, I still need to have some kind of structure and routine. But then when I had COVID at the beginning of the year, I was like, nah, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> I like an up office for like the first 45 minutes of my day when I'm drinking coffee. I get a solid 45 minutes of work done before I pretend that the real world exists. I don't think <laughs> I can do it, but I just think it's different doing it. Like I don't go to bed and work, but I think in the morning. Yeah, different, different kind. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, how are you? Are you good? Yes, all fully recovered, good. raring to go. <laughs> <laughs> you, do, you look surprisingly fresh for 7am. Like you, you look really awake. I feel it. I've, uh, yeah. I, I've, I, so my sleep's been off because of the cold. And then, you, you know, when you have one of those like really deep sleeps, I think it was on Tuesday night, and I woke up for the first time ever at like half seven. I can't remember ever lying in that long in years. And I was like, oh my God, I'm a new woman. What is this? <laughs> now imagine you did that like once a week. I do try and do that. Like once a week, I'm like, on weekdays, I'm like, right, set your alarm just an hour later. And it's usually like a Tuesday morning because I've got stuff on a heavy day on a Monday. Mm. Like just one day a week, let yourself have that extra hour. And it does make a difference. Yeah, I think I'm gonna try it. Gonna try. Um, you were just saying before we started the podcast about Jamila. Jamila, like, I don't, I follow her, but I've not seen any of this. But she's been having a rant this week. Yeah, so she, I think she's, um, like they released who's starring in, um, let's say Star Trek. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But that's then followed because I think there's a new superman tv series and it's following superman's son and they've made superman's son bisexual okay and the outrage this is what she's been posting on all the comments on all various sites and twitter and social media and things it's ridiculous like apparently people can't cope with that idea why because he should be heterosexual just like all the other Oh my word. But then she pointed out that there's a couple of like female superheroes that have a little lesbian thing. And she's like, none of you guys had a problem with that. So. <laughs> do you know what? Actually, I saw, do you follow Nicole Arbor? No, no. She's a comedian and sometimes she's a bit, uh, but I follow her because she's very close to the bone. And sometimes I think it's good to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. She's the opposite of being liberal. What's the opposite of liberal? It's a term. Uh, anyway, 
I follow her for that reason but she I saw her do a video about this and she said like she said literally now um movie writers have got to the point with Superman that they have literally nothing else to do so they've decided to make Superman bisexual as a bit of a storyline because they said she was like they've repeated every single thing so many times <laughs> movies it's like oh let's just make him bisexual and I was like maybe that that, that makes sense now uh, people just need to chill out I was speaking about this on the podcast that we did with me and Emma did with Ed the need the a need to read podcast which was fun if anyone's not listened to it and then um, we did two podcasts we did one on the way of the superior man and book and then we did a second one on feminism and stuff like that and um, I was saying like people make such a big deal out of feminism and gender neutrality and non-binary and things like this like what am I supposed to do now what am I supposed to say around women how am I supposed to act I just don't know what to do anymore and I don't know what to call them is it he is it they and it's like it's really not that big a deal like okay they're bisexual and then that's it Mm -hmm. or so or like okay you want to you don't want to they don't want to be called he anymore they want to be called they great that's it it's like why imagine having the energy to be outraged at the sexuality of Superman like imagine having that level of free time and energy I can't can't. I think the best bit was like well maybe you should actually go outside and realize that these people exist in the real world (laughs) (laughs) so oh that's gonna upset some people oh god unbelievable (coughs) watch that one um okay let's crack on with the questions um do you want to go first Mm mm-hmm um when is the right time in your opinion to let go of tracking even if trying to lose fat Hmm. good question (laughs) if this is hard right because you ask 100 people and 90 of them might say that they feel like they have to hit their numbers on my fitness pal and they feel a bit crap if they don't and for one person that could be okay because it's part of their overall fat loss journey and it's just more a bit like, oh, I'm a bit annoyed that I didn't hit my goals. But for another person, it could be like, I lose sleep over the fact that I'm two grams off my protein target and my calories and I feel stressed and I feel guilt. And then that's very, very like that's a very different approach to it. I think it comes down to the way that you see it. So if you are, if you regularly feel guilt or shame for not hitting your macros, it's a bit of a red flag. Or if you go over your macros and then you go screw it and go way over your macros then that's another red flag if you can't take a day off I remember once having a client who tracked at a funeral because they couldn't take that time off of tracking and if you're doing things like going to these major events and not being able to not pick up your phone and put it in that's another red flag so on the flip side of that I think people are very quick to jump to have disordered habits around tracking because it's quite a common narrative at the moment. And tracking is tracking is the most useful tool for fat loss. I have a lot of clients who don't track and lose body fat. And I have a lot of clients who do track and lose body fat. But I think we have a danger in a danger at the moment of kind of saying mm, disordered eating doesn't have like a specific definition. Like there's no this is disordered eating and this isn't so tracking to some people would be disordered but for a lot of people it's a really helpful way to lose body fat so I think you need to look at like, are is it causing you levels of stress is it causing you levels of guilt or shame is it impacting the way that you eat on a day-to-day basis and that you're massively overeating if you don't hit your numbers um 
And are you massively preoccupied with it? Are you spending all day thinking, oh, if I eat this now, then I can eat this and I can have two more cookies at dinner because I'm going to swap swap this around. And, you know, that internal dialogue of just constantly thinking about, oh, how will I macro top tonight? And I remember, do you remember those days? Oh, God, yeah. Was it like? macro capping wasn't it <laughs> macro capping it's when like you'd be like well if I don't eat this at lunch then I can have this exact bowl of oats with two squares of chocolate and three mini cookies and that like and then you would imagine this heavenly meal that you were going to have before bed because you were macro capping and it was like that's not that's not a great time no but I remember looking at that being like how do people eat like that when I was just on a meal plan <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> like, what is this witchery <laughs> you're just inhaling your broccoli and dry chicken yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah um yeah um, okay do you have any advice when feeling socially anxious or awkward at events? For example, how to loosen up around others, especially at a party with dancing involved or holding conversations with people that you don't know that well? Hi, friend. Awkward <laughs> 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 turtle. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Do we speak about this a couple of weeks ago and kind of having some like questions you can go ready to ask people? Yeah, we did actually. Right, that was one, and this person does listen to the podcast. Really yeah, so. I think I, like in those situations, that is exactly what I do, and also not try and force myself to dance because I'm just gonna feel even more awkward. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really a sober dancer, and it's not like I need to be drunk to have fun. But in general, you know what? You, you don't have to be like. There's this. I think you you feel like I know that I definitely used to feel like this. Like this pressure to be like, I wish I was like that. And it's like what. Mm. Do you though? Because again, it's, we talk about this quite a lot in other um, facets, but like, you don't know if that person is happy dancing sober. You also don't know what they're like in the rest of their life. Are they loud? Are they extroverted? Are they, do they have all these qualities that you think actually I maybe wouldn't like those qualities on myself, but I would like to pick and choose these qualities. You know, it's the same as if you see a lean body, it's like, you don't know what else is going on. So don't give yourself any pressure. It's okay to be social awkward. I, when I went to IFS and I met some people, that was a bit apprehensive about me and not because of nervousness, but because of like various online things. And I remember speaking to one of them once we got to know each other really well. I was like, oh, yeah, I was just really socially awkward when I first met you. And he was like, I didn't notice that at all. That like, you were really <laughs> awkward. And he was like, it was actually a really good conversation. And I was like, oh, but to me, I have this such a belief that I'm socially awkward, even though now I probably am not, that I just have it as a guard immediately. He's like, no. And then I thought, oh, God, I'm just making myself look insecure by saying I was socially awkward. And then you go, oh, that's all they're not have. So, yeah, I think listen to the podcast, but chill out and just be like, do you know what? Great. This is, this is who I am. And maybe I'm a bit socially awkward and that's okay. This, yeah. Life would be boring if we were all the same. Um, boredom snacking. Any tips for this? I find, especially at work when it's quiet and I'm bored, I'm looking for food as a distraction entertain yourself I think I did a post on this actually recently about boredom but it was less about in the moment stuff and more about if you're regularly bored of eating then look at where's your excitement and your passion coming from in your life without being over dramatic like there's obviously in the moment boredom when we all get in the moment in the moment bored boredom um but then there's like longer scale like if you're constantly bored 
find some things that you love to do like one of my clients knits on her work break because she's like she's it's really meditative because it's so immersive and it stops that boredom eating and if you've got time to boredom eat and work which a lot of people do and this is maybe not a break so you can't just be like oh sitting at the desk and whip out my knitting but there's probably something that you can do to entertain your brain if you're not working then do something else like I think a good way to do it and we did this and I just spoke to a lot of people about this in lockdown is setting yourself like an analog schedule of saying right for the next 45 minutes on my timer on my phone I'm just going to work I'm just going to focus on this then I'm going to take 15 minutes and then you've got a structured 15 minutes and it obviously depends on what your work allows but then you've got a structured 15 minutes where you can go for a walk or you can go and make a cup of tea or you can go and have a conversation or you can scroll on social media whatever it is you want to do for 15 minutes and then repeat over and over again for the day because you're what you're doing there is you're also not immersing yourself in your work so you're not being productive either you're just fanning around doing other things because you don't want to do what you're doing it's not about the food it's not about the food at all it's about you figuring out how you're going to plan your day so that you're more structured and focused and that you find things that entertain yourself yeah nothing to add to that okay My mum made a comment that all the evidence shows that the best way to improve life expectancy and morbidity is reduced calorie intake. She is a medical researcher, although not in this area. Is this true? It it isn't true from the Hayes research I've read, but I wondered what your thoughts are on this. I mean, let's just say that Anna's not going to improve her life expectancy if she reduces her calorie intake. God, no. (laughs) So and I think I think that's one thing to note. If anyone makes sweeping statements about things like that, it's generally a bit of a red flag. And I don't mean this in terms certain sense of this person's mum. I just mean in general, um, for a lot of people, reducing their calorie intake is probably going to have the opposite effect. And um, so that's firstly definitely not true. The Hayes research. Hmm. Mm. so (laughs) a lot of the anti-diet research I'm going to use anti-diet specifically because Hayes is more I suppose it's similar but it's a bit more social but I think that a lot of the anti-diet research is quite biased um so for example there's a study that they always cite that is like 95% of diets fail and that's like a really common one that's shared by all the Hayes people it said textbooks everything and when you look at where that research has come from it was one study it was done in the 1950s it was done in a hospital setting in obese patients and what they did is they gave these obese people a meal plan and sent them on their way and told them to come back two years later and then they looked at their fat loss after two years and then they deemed it a successful diet as people who had lost over 20 kilos i think so it was a lot. And anyone that lost less than 20 kilos was deemed a failure. Oh, God. Yeah. So I think it was 20 kilos. Um, yeah, I think it was 45 pounds or something. So that's, and that is the research that is used over and over again by Hayes researchers. If I gave anyone a meal plan and said, okay, here's a meal plan, come back two years later, do you really think that anyone's going to stick to it or be able to do this meal plan every day for the rest? for the rest of that two-year period absolutely not so it's really really flawed um so I don't know the spe- I don't know which specific pieces of research she's talking about but 
there's a lot of research in that movement that's not particularly excellent. Um, that being said, if you are in a larger body, there is of course potential that it's going to impact your health. But usually people saying this are not necessarily people that are in larger bodies who would benefit from losing body fat. Um, so if you are quote unquote healthy, you have a lot of healthy habits, you exercise regularly and you're metabolically fit and your BMI is like, I don't know, between 19 and 28, 29, like you're probably fine. And um, maybe like maybe BMI is obviously rogue, right? So I'm not being really specific with the numbers here. Um, and then you're, you're probably fine. The best way to support longevity if we're looking at body composition is muscle mass. That's one of the most uh, clear direct correlations between health and longevity and body composition and longevity is muscle mass and strength, not body fat necessarily. But again, on the flip side, there does seem to be a correlation between BMI and mortality. And so the higher BMI you have after a certain point without healthful behaviors on top of that, yeah, you're increased risk of mortality. We need to stop. The problem is, is that we need to stop belittling this stuff for the people that need to hear it. But we also need to stop internalizing it for the people that don't need to hear it. Um, a lot of people don't, a lot of people think that if they're got if they're healthy and they've got a BMI of 22, if they gain five kilos, it's going to impact their health. And it's like, mm, you probably gained a BMI of one or two points and you're still really healthy and you still have all of these healthy habits, but it's not impacting your longevity. It's more like if you've gone and you've gained 30 kilos, maybe, and you're in a smaller body and you've, and you've gained 30 kilos and you've moved from a BMI of 24 to a BMI of 34, Right, that might impact your longevity, but what can we do to support it? And again, I'm using BMI really roughly because it's not always the best marker, but it is on a population scale, a pretty decent marker. So that's my thoughts on it. <laughs> Hopefully that's helpful. Um, you've taught me that there is no such thing as bad food. Is this exclusively true or are there any that would be deemed as bad? It's exclusively true in that no food has moral value. So, yes. The only food that I would say I would be mindful of how much I include it in my diet. Actually, I think there's not a specific food. There's never a specific food that I'd say don't include it in your diet or have it at a less amount. But like, there are certain things like trans fats, which you don't get in the UK, but you get them in the States that have no health benefits at all but they're delicious and I still wouldn't call it a bad food I just say be mindful of the trans fats you consume because they're not great for your health long term but if I was on holiday in the US for a month would I eat trans fats if I wanted a donut that had trans fats in it absolutely I would still not a bad food it's food neutrality is more about the way that you view food as opposed to like specific constituents of food um so yeah, it's, I, what would you say? I'd say it's exclusively. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly the same. Side note entirely, did you see the <laughs> um, bakery, I think in Leeds? No. That got, oh, they were using sprinkles from the US that weren't allowed and they've had to like throw away, stop producing their best-selling cookie or something like that. 
because someone complained and like about them they probably were like this is too delicious there's something (laughs) well alas it's american (laughs) yeah apparently we're not allowed them in this country so this is the thing that we also have to remember obviously we have clients all over right and people who listen to us that are all over but in the uk and europe they're quite stringent on like the foods that they allow within like uk standards but then on the flip side of that i've definitely seen people on tiktok saying especially americans saying these foods are banned in the uk so they must be lethal in the us and it's like no no they're still absolutely fine but that's such a common thing to say well if the uk don't allow it or europe don't allow it then why are we allowing it in america it must be awful and it's like no um on that note when I, I was driving home last night and I had like five miles of petrol left luckily I got to oh, I, saw. <laughs> I was literally like oh my god I'm gonna end up on the side of the road I'm gonna have to phone someone but then I, so I went to a random service station and it was one with Cinnabon and I was oh my god I was the, the joy that I felt <laughs> I got two I got a pecan one and a regular one but I've saved the regular one for breakfast this morning i was gonna say that now yeah <laughs> after this podcast i'm about to have that one um i was thinking about this though like i was thinking about it on the drive home because i had a bit of it and then i put it down and then i was driving for like a couple of hours or whatever and then i had the rest of it and obviously the other one was still in the car and i was thinking to myself driving for me and i don't know if you ever had this but driving for me was always a time that i used to massively overeat and I always used to think, oh, it's because service stations, it's just all the food was there. And if before, if I went to that service station, I would have bought like four cinnamon buns and I would have eaten them all because they were there and I wouldn't have them any other time. And I always used to think, oh, it's because I'm bored. It was because I'm around this food. And then I realised, and I've had this conversation with clients, is that driving, is long distance driving is so often a time of being alone with your thoughts and thinking it's like oh it's service stations and it's because I wasn't prepared and it's like it might be those things but it's also you're overeating when you're driving because you are having to think of like your brain is going wild and I want a really good solution of that is a figuring out what you're overthinking and journaling day to day doing the work x y and z but b when you're actually in the car it's like finding an audio book or something that is really turns your brain on so that you're not like thinking about other things I mean I don't do that anymore well sometimes I do last night I just put my 80s pop on the whole way home <laughs> honestly I'm singing Westlife eating a cinnamon bun <laughs> dancing in my car and I was like oh, could life get any better <laughs> honestly I did have those moments I thought this is what life is this right this now um but yeah like it's a really good tip like if you're somebody who overeats on long journeys which I know a lot, a lot of people are other than obviously making sure that you have a big meal before you go and doing all the other stuff it's like that's probably because your brain is needs occupied but uh, <coughs> yeah it was a nice realization and I'm really pleased that I've got another cinema fun this morning mm. um okay I'm in a pretty good place in terms of body acceptance and feeling confident and proud in my own skin however when I get intimate with a partner I feel like I lose a lot of this confidence and become a lot more self-conscious why may this be any tips in getting over these feelings as I want to feel just as confident in these situations as I do in general? Mm. Uh, I, I would ask yourself if you are trying to make them happy. So much, that's exactly what I thought. And in, in that sense, you're more worried about how you look 
not how you're feeling so much that we like as women so often we do performative sex we think that we are having sex we feel like we have to look a certain way perform in a certain way it's why we fake orgasms we were there to support a man's ego and do what behave in a way that we think that we should uh, in that sex environment and I think that like like you said that has a huge impact on our body confidence too because we think our, do our bodies need to look a certain way for this and I mean uh, this person is straight so I use I'm not I'm not it's not unconscious bias like I'm talking about a man in the situation but it could be in any sex relationship um <laughs> your body confidence is in that situation is so dependent on it's not but in this situation it's dependent on this other person and it's like what you want to do is get to a place where you're having sex because you want to have sex you're having sex because you enjoy it and you're having sex in a way that you enjoy and a lot of that comes from communication with someone which is not necessarily something you can do if it's like a one night stand or or something casual but you want to be able to every time you have sex even if it's a one night stand be able to communicate and be like this is what I want or this is good or this is not good or and when you get to that point it takes the emphasis off the way you look because you're not trying to look a certain way for that person anymore it's a mutual thing of like we're both in this for enjoyment we're not I'm not in this to appease you well maybe you are but then they can appease you back (laughs) (laughs) yeah so I think it's less about body and more about the way that you view sex and the way that patriarchy has kind of made sex to be about enjoyment for men and babies for women and challenging that it's one reason why being a feminist can be really helpful for your body image as well as your sex life remember like in the i'm i was going to say trashy but like cosmo type magazines and you always get the girls that are like well i can only do it this way because it makes me look the best but that's that's not what it's about though is it yeah absolutely that I've I've definitely been like that oh a hundred a hundred percent but then you're like "Mm." but does it actually are you getting anything from that yeah when your mind's that busy as well god you're not going to enjoy anything oh god I know there's a really good this is kind of a tantric thing but like if you practice mindfulness and sex it can really improve your sex life in general, but also will probably help with body image. And so I don't mean like sit, like breathing and naming all your senses, but actually pay attention to what it feels like. Like physically be like, what's going on right now? What does this feel like for me? And also practice deep breathing. This is a tantric thing. We were speaking about this on the Have podcast. you seen Alice Levine is doing like a show, a TV series where she's following like she goes to meet people that are doing different kind of sex things no. and she did an episode on like well-being and sex Ooh. and one of them was uh, a lady that um helps practice I don't, I don't know the right word tantric <laughs> sex. but there were lots of different and, and like you said there was a one that was more about the breathing and movement and really cool I need to watch it because I've read a tantric sex book but I never got to the end of it because I was like okay get it but like a lot of it is just like I'm totally simplifying it here I'm talking basic stuff but like it's like breathing in and one of the things in this the way of the superior man was that man was actually talking about this but it's like breathing in to what's going on so breathing all the way down to your pelvic floor taking huge deep breaths rather than like 
being distracted like be totally ground yourself in the moment it's a way of improving mindfulness it'll improve your enjoyment of it but also it just takes your emphasis away from your body mm. no i'd highly recommend watching it's, it's okay good. what what will that be on channel four okay i will watch it okay next <laughs> uh tips for facing into vulnerability and putting boundaries in place to speak your needs when you fear rejection ah fearing rejection i <laughs> say what <laughs> can't relate excuse me <coughs> um we have to i'm trying to think of a good way to answer this we're all going to be rejected at some point and we have to get a bit comfortable with it. That's the first thing. And rejection happens. If you've had, if you've got any sort of abandonment issues from when you were younger, then rejection can feel like the worst thing in the world. And I know personally for me, if someone rejects me, it either makes, it, it usually makes me want them more. That's abandonment issues. <laughs> if any men are listening to this, please don't listen don't take that advice um but you can recognize it in yourself usually if you do have that I think I think unless you trust someone it's very hard to be vulnerable with them but I don't think you should be vulnerable with someone unless you trust them so work on that side of things first like boundaries is slightly different but vulnerability is a gift and it's something that you you don't have to give away easily and I say this as someone who is way vulnerable on social media. And I don't trust 90% of my followers <laughs> on social media. Actually, that's a lie, 50%. I love people who follow me, but I don't know them. So I can't trust them, right? But if you're in a situation where you actually know someone, unless you trust them, don't be vulnerable with them. Like, give a little bit. And of course, let's, again, come back to dating just because it's quite an easy situation. I don't know what the situation is here. To build a connection with someone, you have to be vulnerable. But at the same time, if you are vulnerable and overshare when you first meet someone, it's not vulnerability. It's oversharing by me, as a means to try and uh, communicate with someone. It's not a means to enhance connection. It's to be like, this is my emotional shit. Take it on and love me for it. As opposed to like getting to know someone and saying, okay, I trust you a little bit. I'm going to just plant a little seed of vulnerability and, and talk a little bit about my past just to see how you deal with it. And that enhances connection. So I think that's one thing. And then the boundary thing, less so. You can set boundaries with anyone. Um, you don't need to trust them. But that's quite different from being vulnerable. That's just daunting because you're not used to putting boundaries in place because you're a people pleaser. No offense to the person who's asking, but if we struggle with boundaries, it's generally because we're people pleasers. <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say that probably 90%, if not more, of our clients <laughs> are people pleasers. Absolutely. And that's not an insult. We both do it. We still do it. I know we do it. Um, and the, we have to call our speech over on it. When I ask you to do something, I'm like, if this is okay, like, <laughs> feel free to say no. Don't please me by <laughs> saying yes. Um, so I think the boundaries thing, you just have to lean into the discomfort of doing it and remember why you're doing it. Um, and the, they get easier. The more and more you set boundaries in place, the easier it gets. It's just that initial like thing. It's like, we're... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> we're still so healthy <laughs> oh, we are absolute goals right now um, okay <clears throat> emotional eating could this be a learned behavior 
I've been doing this from the age of six or seven. And is it important to focus on today's triggers as opposed to focusing on the why from childhood? Great question. Mm, I think yes. Well, yes, and yes. <laughs> yes, it, it could have just become habit behavior now that food is what you turn to naturally. Um, and I think it is both important to understand present triggers so you can work on finding alternative um, things to help you deal with those emotions, but also doing some work to understand the childhood things as well, maybe some inner child work. Yeah, and of course it can be learned behaviour in that you maybe saw it from your parents, which a lot of our food relationships are manifested from. Um, and like you said, it could be habit. And we have this hedonic drive to eat where what happens when we eat certain foods is that it triggers a certain um, chemical release in our brain that is hedonic, i.e. we're eating for pleasure. And, and your brain starts to recognise this. So for me, every time I see a sign that looks like a Cinnabon sign, I immediately remember the feeling of eating a Cinnabon. Cinnabon which is joy and contentment. And I feel that even before I've smelled it or eaten it and then I smell it and then that's heightened. And so part of emotional eating is that side of things <clears throat> because you want that hedonic drive. But then there's also, like you said, the, the feelings in the moment. And then on top of that, there's also unmet needs that could well have stemmed from childhood that you've not actually dealt with. So maybe you're chronically disconnected or chronically lonely, which is kind of a classic. So you might not recognize it, that you feel lonely in the time. You might be like socializing and having a great time and everything is good. But for an example would be if you're not feeling like you are being truly yourself in a social situation. So you're forcing yourself to dance when you feel like you want to die and you are extrovert in your conversation and having all this conversation when really you would like to just sit and have a conversation with one person. And you, so you're not getting your true self out there that can lead to feelings of discon disconnection because you're not connected on the level of who you truly are. You're connected on a level of like um, transactional. So you go home and you're like, I'm going to be lonely. I've just been at a party with all of these people. Like, of course I'm not lonely. I must be emotionally eaten because I've got no willpower or because something's triggered me today and I don't know what it is. When really it could be actually that you've come home to the fact that you just now still feel lonelier than ever because you've not connected with anyone and that can be a chronic thing and you could have felt that since you were 12 you could have felt disconnected since you were 12 because that was when you started people pleasing or trying to be something that you're not and that's why you're emotionally eating so that's just like one example there's so many there's so many drivers or potential drivers for emotional eating and usually it does come down to like emotional dysregulation but on top of that, there are things like hunger regulation and trusting your internal cues um, the, the hedonic drive to eat. And they all kind of combine, which is why when we work with clients, we work with them for quite a while because it might be that they tackle the first like, surface level stuff. And then actually we need to go a little bit deeper and think about well, what else could potentially go on, be going on. Oh, I like this one. What have been your biggest learnings from client-coach relationship over the years you have been practising? Oh, sweet. Couple of things, I think. 
we all have a lot of common thing themes in what we do obviously but everyone is different and unique and there's this concept actually we took we talk about this talked about this at ifs m and i called trained in capacity where you start to see it's like you start to see everyone through the lens of i've worked with a thousand clients who all suffer with emotional eating so the thousand and one i'm going to treat them in the same way as everyone else and that's a huge error it's one of the reasons we limit client numbers because we want to be able to know our clients inside and out because it avoids this trained in capacity but i know in the past i definitely would have assumed everyone well they just they just overeat because they're numbing their feelings it's like well maybe but what else is going on it's so individual to the person so i've definitely learned that like it's so easy to listen to a podcast like this and say oh she just mentioned that you overeat because you're disconnected and lonely that's definitely me so easy to fall into that and one of the biggest things for me is like that's not the case at all sometimes it can be something so minuscule that's happened at some point in life and no one else has ever would have ever explained something like that to me um so I think everyone being unique is is one thing despite the fact obviously we all have a lot of shared things also um how about you <laughs> you stole my one <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I, I think that's just it how completely individual everyone is mm-hmm. and I think that then drives me to want to carry on learning and to be a better coach yeah for sure for sure um trying to think if there's if there's anything else I learn from my clients all the time but it's generally not to do with like relationships with food they'll tell me something I'm like oh that's cool but it's never <laughs> yeah <laughs> really good for that um yeah I don't think that, I don't I think that's the key mm. Um, okay. Tips for how to cope with not being able to train or exercise as regularly as you regularly would. So this person's going in for some elective surgery um, next month and trains regularly and has always trained really regularly. Um, I would try and see it as a really good opportunity to I don't know do other things that make you happy find other things that make you happy how often do you give yourself that time away from training I think there's always that massive panic isn't there that well if I'm not training well what am I going to do I had a week off training and I I think I spoke about this on a live because I was really struggling a few weeks ago um, to meditate because my mind was just not wanting to do it. But similar to your client that knits, I was like, I'm going to spend a week (laughs) cross-stitching just to, I know, it's it's, but it's something that like when I was growing up, I absolutely loved because I was just one of those weird kids. (laughs) I was like, oh, I'm going to do that because I don't want to, I'm not going to train and I'm trying to keep... uh, expenditure down a little bit at the moment so yeah might as well try that again I'm quite upset that I've not seen any sort of outcome (laughs) yet I do expect to see some soon (laughs) okay noted (laughs) good um yeah I mean I agree I also think get it's a good time to get inquisitive about why you feel that you have to exercise because logically so this person's been with me for a while so logically we know 
take in six weeks, say, off training. If as long as your protein intake is sufficient, you're not going to lose muscle mass over six weeks. So logically, there's nothing there. Is it because you're still equating it to calories and earning your food? Well, then reframe this because you need this time out to show yourself that you can do it and that taking time out doesn't impact your doesn't impact your quality of life or your health in any way for that amount of time so it's an opportunity to really challenge what is potentially an unhelpful and an unhealthy mindset um and so almost it's like sometimes I try I know this is any fade but sometimes I do think like this is a gift from the universe to be like you this is there's a reason I'm giving you this right now and all this this is elective surgery but there's a reason this is coming into your life right now and that's because you need this time to do something you need this time to challenge yourself on this because this is the last part of your relationship with food maybe that needs a bit of work or a relationship with exercise that needs a bit of work so I'm going to make it happen so you have no choice but to do it um which is a very privileged thing to say because of course things happen in life that are way worse than this and are not elective and all of these things but I'm talking about maybe in this situation um and other than what you said I think I think that's kind of it and just keeping a bit of perspective especially in this situation so this situation like was a choice so really saying you know what how lucky you are to be able to make this choice and she knows that she's great so but always kind of keeping that perspective of like it's the same as if someone's going away for the weekend how do I deal with not training for that amount of time or eating differently and it's like you are so lucky that you have these people around you that you want to go away with and you get to make this choice and you can afford to go away for these people and you can take advantage of these situations like how lucky you are to be able to say my biggest problem right now is not training for two days that's great and it's not to invalidate problems but perspective in these types of things although sound although it sounds harsh to say get some perspective and again it's not in this case but in general sometimes I feel that like if someone asked me a question on my stories and I'm like let's look at the bigger picture here it, perspective is so important and it's so easy to get wrapped up in your own head of all of this stuff and it's like like a grand scheme of life is this going to matter in five years no so then don't give it more than five minutes or maybe like that's very reductionist but you know what? <laughs> um how do I deal with body issues surrounding the changes due to um IVF hormone injections I've always been conscious that my weight is the reason we couldn't get pregnant and now I'm second guessing myself all the time feeling like I've gained so much weight and the weight I didn't lose in the past wasn't real I'm looking at my body constantly and feeling really low about it any tips on how to deal with this yeah um sorry that 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 you're going through that at the moment that's really hard um so with any sort of changes in your hormones, you're, it's so common for your body image to be thrown off anyway. So we see this in IVF, we see this in pregnancy, we see it with HA and return of HA and menopause. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, so for example, during PMS, you, we have this research that suggests that we spend more time body checking in the areas that we don't like. We spend less time focusing on the areas that we do during PMS because of these hormonal fluctuations and they don't have this research in terms of IVF or menopause but it wouldn't surprise me if there were certain cycles of your IVF treatment that the hormone fluctuations contributed to um, where you are directing your attention and by the sounds of things you're body checking a lot so 
actively working on that actively calling yourself out for body check-in and like how many times are you looking in the mirror how many times are you looking at your body how many times are you trying on clothes that don't fit like all of these things you need to be accountable for and say this action is not serving me anymore because it's just making me feel rubbish I'm bringing your body check-in down but on the flip side with IVF and the stress of IVF potentially and the the potential outcomes of IVF, your mood is probably going to be hugely impacted. And the, one of the biggest contributors to how we feel about our bodies, and we genuinely believe that our bodies have changed, is our mood. So rather than working on like how you look at your body or on top of thinking about that, thinking about um, how you support in your mood, what you do for stress management, are you communicating with your partner if you have a partner? Are you doing things that still make you happy are you still taking time out to like live your passions and do things that make you laugh that's going to have a huge impact on your mood and then on top of that um thinking about what was I going to say I just had a complete mind blank that's nice um oh yeah thinking about the fact that like treat your think about how much care your body deserves right now like what you're what it's going through to to support this process in your life is huge and actively saying like actively being like god thanks body for allowing me to do this this is quite a hard thing to do if you have any sort of underlying resentment or anger um which is of course unjustified but if you're struggling with pregnancy and conception, you might actually be struggling with gratitude for your body because you think, why am I going through this? Um, why is it so difficult? And that's another reason why your body image might be impacted. So trying to look at that, is there anything there that, that might be the case? And can you reframe that and start working on like, well, what is it going through now? What is, what is it allowing now? And almost accepting and acknowledging those feelings that might be coming up that you might not necessarily be um, aware of yet. No, this uh, this week when she checked in, obviously it's it's been a hard week, but she did say how this has been a big step up in how kind and compassionate she's been to herself as well. So that was really cool. Yeah, that's <clears> a really important time to do that um oh, it's me it's me um <coughs> any tips on how to navigate eating and excluding certain things from a medical condition and not falling into the trap of diet culture it's not really the foods that are the issue but more the mindset trying not to fall into deprivation calorie counting etc I'd also like to say that she ended this question with, if that makes sense, and I'm going to pull you up on this, on this again. <laughs> it does make sense. Women, stop asking if things make sense, unless like it really doesn't make sense, because it's just, you, you, it's a thing that we do that shows that we have a bit of self-doubt in ourselves, and it shows other people that we have a bit of doubt in ourselves. What you said, it was perfect sentence structure, perfectly clear, don't doubt yourself it makes sense great question <laughs> do you know i had a a check-in this week and after i i replied 
she then responded and was like, did the check-in make sense? I was like, and that, th that then had me doubting. Well, like, did my reply not make sense? Like, what, what's going on? God, no. <laughs> so I was like, oh, no. I was like, you made sense. I made sense. We're all good. We're all good. <laughs> God, self-esteem nasty little sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> how would you not fall into the trap? Uh, I mean, it's going to come down to that self-awareness, isn't it? Which sounds as, as though she, it's already there. Um, and I guess calling yourself out for any behaviours, but reminding yourself of why you're doing it. You're doing it for, like you said, medical condition, as opposed to wanting to diet or because you feel that you shouldn't X, Y and Z. Yeah, I think even just your word choice is really helpful. Like, say, for example, it's say you're celiac and it's gluten, right? Saying, well, I can't have that. That's, that's a really, like, that's, a, again, a bad food or, or whatever. Like, try and not use terminology that falls into diet culture. You could say something like, um, like, I don't know, that's a, that food is, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a different word for it. Um, I suppose it's a trigger food. Um, but this is specific to this case and not in if we then are looking at like say overeating and binge eating is a very different situation to say that would be a trigger food because that can fall into then a limiting belief and a self-fulfilling prophecy so I'm talking specifically in terms of health outcomes here I think it can you can when you have health issues you can demonize way more than is fair and you can become quite fearful of foods so being really really rational with this and saying like is that food genuinely trigger trigger into your health condition i.e gluten with celiac or is it or are you just saying it's easier to avoid these foods just in case there's quite a clear distinction there so being really really clear on like that food medically impacts me and that's fine. It's not giving it a moral value and it's not associating it with anything to do with body composition. Medically, that food doesn't really support me, so I'm not going to have it. And I've got clear evidence of this because the last time I ate gluten, I ended up in hospital. Okay, great. Medically, not great for you. But trying to just be very mindful of the language that you use and the, your, like, the way you talk about things and being very specific with your exclusion as opposed to kind of just saying none of like being taking a broad approach because when you start taking a broad approach that's when you see people that go like dairy-free gluten-free sugar-free all of these things because it's just quote-unquote easier and it's like no like that is a restrictive mindset so <laughs> like you said be very self-aware and calling yourself out on it um going with one of steph's client questions um how to deal with being super critical of oneself and negative self-talk, not necessarily body image, that is completely triggered by hormones of your cycle? Um, I think, aware, again, awareness is so important here. If you, if you know that during PMS, you are not particularly kind to yourself, like naming it as that. So I get dead paranoid in PMS. So when I, I don't make decisions in that week because I know that, they're probably not great decisions or they might not be great decisions. So I, I name it and say, this is PMS paranoia. I know that in 
a few days time that's not going to be true and it is although it doesn't necessarily take it away it's reminding yourself that that it's transient and it's reflective of your hormones not reflective of reality and the same can be said for if you are being critical of yourself saying this is a pms thought this is not a real thought and it's going to pass in five to seven days so i'm, I'm going to recognize it accept it and reframe it and just say this is this is what it is it's not reality um and also like being proactive i spoke to emma about this on an eiq live like being proactive with your PMS is really great rather than going into it and being like, I'm a victim of PMS every month, which I've certainly done. Going into it and be like, right, PMS, this is an opportunity to go. I'm going to take a deload week. I'm excited to take a deload week in the time that it's going to give me. I'm going to use PMS to actively go to bed an hour earlier because I know that I get knackered during PMS. I'm going to use this week to actively, actually either make plans because I'm an extrovert and I thrive off that or I'm going to use this week to actively be like I'm not going to make any social plans this week and I'm going to start a new book and I'm going to like do these things for myself that make me feel good and and all of these things will help in terms of how you're talking to yourself and how critical you're being because you are recognizing what's going on but you're actively treating yourself in a kinder way to kind of offset that Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. If you know that this is a difficult time and the negative self-talk is rife, then what can you do to challenge that? And I've got a couple of clients that kind of, they either use an app or they have, um, I think one of them's like written down their favourite affirmations so that each day they've just got something as a reminder to kind of challenge that mindset. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, hold on. Okay. I'm not sure if I understand this question. Is increasing body fat to do with increasing body weight? Or is there more to it? Um, I think if you increase body weight okay so this person is lean building strength muscle if you gain body weight you could be gaining body fat you could be gaining body muscle lean muscle mass probably both if you're training you're probably gaining both um yeah i don't really i think that answers the question (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um is avoiding where you fixate on your body a good approach because i'm still thinking about my body a lot even if i'm not looking at touching it i mean there's a fine line between avoidance and so the avoidance on one side body checking on the other and we probably like a healthful approach to your body image is probably somewhere in the middle if you're overly fixating on it then that's not great and that's that's increased body checking is going to potentially contribute to low body image but total body avoidance is not a sign of good body image either um because it's almost like denial so it depends i mean perception here is really important if you've gone from checking measurements all the time and taking your scale weight every time and looking at your body all the time to then not really looking at it you could think that that's body avoidance 
But for example, I don't look at my body in the mirror every day. I very rarely actually look at my body. That's not avoidance. It's just because I'm not looking at it because I'm not fixated on it. That's very different from someone saying, I'm not even going to look in the mirror at all and I'm going to look at the floor and I walk past the mirror because I don't want to look at my body. Even though on paper, both of us don't check our body in the mirror all day. So again, it's like, what is the story that you're telling yourself as to why that that's going on? Um, if you're still thinking about your body a lot, even though you're not looking at it or body checking, what do you spend your what do you spend your time on? What do you want to spend your time on? Because a lot of people will think about their body because it's something to entertain their brain. And this is not a conscious thing because there's something else going on. Maybe you don't, again, this comes back to one of the questions from earlier. Maybe you don't have things in your life that you want to think about, you want to focus on, be that work, be that fun social plans, be that romantic love what do you want to fill that space with and are you actively taking making habits and actively taking action in line with that so example would be again dating it's an easy one to come back to like do you want to fill your headspace with thinking about a partner right well are you dating are you on a dating app are you talking to people on instagram are you socializing at work are you putting in are you saying to yourself i'm going to start doing these things and holding yourself accountable to that so i think Although this course is a question about body avoidance, um, which we don't want to do. And I think, you know, things like looking in the mirror and using affirmations. I know you've just mentioned these, but using affirmations, not about how you look, but about who you are as a person um, is probably a really good approach here. But also thinking about what do you want to fill that, those gaps with that, that you're using to think about your body? What, yeah, what else can you what else do you want to fill your heart with because you're not going to get joy you'll get joy from body neutrality but the joy often with body neutrality comes from what you can then do because you have it so thinking about what you actually want to do yeah nothing to add <laughs> um okay i think we're going to stop there we do have some more questions so if we haven't answered your questions then we We'll definitely do them next week on the podcast because we've got some really good ones. So keep them coming in, please. And thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.